Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of In Depth with Beth and Seth, an occasional podcast of Plymouth Congregational <laughs> Church, wherein we discuss what we heard the day prior in the sermon. My name is Beth Hoffman Faith, and I'm glad to be with you and Seth after a couple of weeks off. It's good to have you back, Beth. Thanks, Seth. Yes, we haven't been able to do our podcast for a couple of weeks. We had Easter, and uh, which exhausted us, and so we took that Easter Monday fully off and didn't did not record a podcast. And then I had some unexpected surgery on my knee, very minor, but that took me out last week. So we have had a little bit of a pause, but we're back at it today, just in time to talk about your sermon, Seth. I'm oh, so boy. glad to be joined by my colleague, who's all the way in Chicago right now and who I cannot see on my computer, <laughs> which always makes recording a little challenging, but we're going to do this, Seth, because you preached a sermon definitely work, worth talking about, and I'm really glad to be with you. Well, thank you, Beth. Hi, everyone. I am Seth Patterson, your Minister for Spiritual Formation and Theater, and yeah, I'm in Chicago uh, for, I have another job uh, at the University of Chicago or for the University of Chicago. And I'm right now in River North, which is just north of the Loop, downtown Chicago. And the internet here is not awesome. So I have my video off and maybe you'll hear some weird little sounds because of technology on this recording. But I'm really glad to be here in, in whatever way we can be. And yeah, it was, it was a loss the last couple of weeks, Beth, to not talk about things Yes, I do. I really enjoy this time. And I think that comes across in our short recordings that we we have a good time talking about things. And it is a bit of a loss. What you mentioned yesterday, change can be lost when we can't when we aren't able to record. But we are here today to talk about your sermon, The Call, question mark, The Call. The Call. (laughs) Yes, which I had to invent long before I had any idea what I was going to say. I think it worked. I I think you found a way to tie it in actually very compellingly, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But this is a sermon that was preached on Sunday, May 1st at Plymouth Congregational Church on the text Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. So just a little context. In the weeks after Easter, the Common Revised Lectionary, which we as preachers at Plymouth often turn to, this prescribed order of readings over a three-year cycle, after Easter, really focus on Acts, which is kind of the beginnings of the Christian church, uh, Paul's ministry, and uh, what the disciples did after the resurrection. And so we focus on Acts. And so Seth got to preach on Paul's conversion. Acts 9 verses 1 through 9 is Saul's conversion to Paul. How'd you feel about that, Seth? (laughs) This road to (laughs) Damascus. I struggled when, when I realized that this is what was being presented to me. There's something about this text that has always um, made me want to kind of wriggle out of it. Mm. it. There's something about, the, it feels to me a bit prescribed. There's something, as I've said in a sermon years ago, the magic parts of the Bible often make me want to find a way 
to step away from them. And this is the theophany of this is sort of magical. And it feels a bit, my sense is that this is a way for Paul to give himself some power Mm. retroactively. And so this story about Paul walking to Damascus, which is a long walk also, which I didn't know before looking into this, he was surrounded by blinding light and then heard the voice of Jesus saying, why are you persecuting? And that is always, it's just something I didn't know how to talk about. It's a, that's interesting. And you and I had conversations earlier in the week where you were not really <laughs> excited about preaching this text. And No, I had um, no idea what my way into it. I didn't know what my question was. And that's often how I've come up with something to say is by figuring out what is my question. Mm-hmm. And I kept reading this and I just couldn't figure out what my question was. It just seemed like it had tied it up so neatly that there were no questions. It was just a thing. It happened. Now let's move on to Paul. And so I, that's what I was struggling with. And yet you ask a most <laughs> compelling question right off the bat. Like you don't waste any time. There's no introduction. <laughs> nope. Your very first line in your sermon yesterday was what does it take for you to change? And you were pointed like we, as a receiver of that question, I knew this was a question about me, the listener. Um, yeah. uh, this was not a collective question. This was a personal one. What does it take for you to change? And I have a feeling everyone sort of, you know, looked up and paid attention in that moment. To, to look out on the two different congregations, there were certainly a lot of glances at each at people glancing at the partner next to them, or uh, some people leaned in, other people really pulled back. (laughs) There there was a lot of reaction, visible reaction to that question. Absolutely. And so I have to ask, for kind of wandering around trying to figure out what your in was, how did you get here? So this this moment of conversion, it really, I mean, the man changes his name. He changed, like everything about this guy shifts. And I, and I began to wonder that, is this the only way that he would have made a change? Is if this voice of Jesus and blinding light came to him, did it take something that big in order for him to have a big change? If that hadn't happened, would he have just rounded up all the followers of Jesus in Damascus and killed them all? And we would have had a very different story. I, there was something about what did it take for him to change and then what would it take for me to change? And then I want to know what it would take for you to change. (laughs) And ultimately I did want to know about collective change. That was the question towards the end. I was hoping to point more towards that, but the only way that we'll know how we could do it collectively is if we can have some sense of how we do it alone or how we do it. If, if you know how you change, then you can more ably participate in group change. I happen to think that this is a question that people before yesterday (laughs) perhaps hadn't given much thought or paid much attention to. I'm not sure in retrospect how much we focus on what it took for us to change, but rather the change itself. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so when you offer us this question about what, what was that thing, event, change of thought process that led you to a change I don't know. That reframes the question in, in, a, in a really different way. And then the way you, you moved through the sermon kind of offering us 
additional food for thought around change. So shortly thereafter, you asked the question, you talk about this quote, or perhaps it is your father's original words. Um, it is trademark Don Patterson. <laughs> well, I, I think Don will continue to be quoted because you said that your dad often said this to you or continues to say this to you throughout your life. People only change when the pain of not changing exceeds the pain of change. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that quote and, and how that's lived in your life. My father, Don Patterson, is, was spent mo the majority of his career as a hospital chaplain. And when you see people in the hospital, they're often being, uh, something has changed for them or they are being asked to change so that it doesn't get worse or so they don't come back. You don't normally go into the hospital and then come out exactly the same as you were before without some willfulness. I mean, sometimes people do, but I think it's a, a willful, I will not change. And so he, as a, a student of people and change, uh, came up with this. And he said it to me my whole life to the point that I often got lost in it. Mm -hmm. I had to really say it slowly. I mean, I got the concept, but I had to say it slowly because I got lost in the not change. And There's something about the phrasing of it that made me have to think more about it. And then as a theater artist, as a storyteller, most of the time when we hear stories, we're watching people change. We are following them on a, on a change in their life and we get to witness it and participate in it from beginning to end. And I think you're right that we in our own lives only see the end result mm. often, but our stories and the ways that we encounter narrative often walk us through it with other people. Well, and for me, this just evoked a lot of thinking about the tremendous change in my life and how true this saying is. And I'm sure many people who were listening yesterday also then went back in their story to times where change was necessary for survival, for for the benefit of their family. I mean, that the change no longer became an option. It was the only way to survive. And yet then you the way this is framed really helps me personally change the way I feel about regret, right? Because many of us on the other side of a change will say, why didn't we do that sooner? Why didn't we do that? Right. Why, why did we this live? This has been great. Yeah. What, what was I so afraid of? Or yes, that was really hard, but now I'm in this better place. I mean, boy, we could spend hours talking about those situations in our lives. I know I, I live with regret a lot about changes I should have made much earlier than I did. And this, this sort of helps reframe that, that there are reasons people choose not to make changes and th those don't have to lead to regret. Those yeah. just have to, to be more about timing and place and sort of personal strength and fortitude. Uh, and, and so that was helpful to me. I appreciated you bringing that in. And what I thought about, even though you didn't really go there is what was the change that, that Paul needed to make? Yes. I know that this sort of scene feels contrived and extraordinary in a way that many of us don't experience change, but how might this apply to Paul? Yeah. I, and this is where 
<laughs> if you listen, if you listen to the sermon, you, you realize I don't go back to the text here, mm-hmm. <laughs> partially because once I get into this question and start wondering about it, I I don't always I don't know exactly how to re-enter that particular story. I think Paul became a tool for God in a way that he wasn't before. And so it follows a bit of the old prophetic call narrative, which I thought I would talk about at some point, but I couldn't quite fit it in. And so he becomes a a prophetic figure in, in the way that many prophets are. They're from the outside, they're doing the wrong thing, and then God calls them in. They say no in whatever way. God shows them a sign, which here the sign was this theophany. And then the person agrees. And God says, I'll go with you. I'll be with you on this. Well, in Paul's later writings, after this experience, he talks often about this affliction that he has in his life, you know, and there's been lots of speculation around what that affliction is. And actually your sermon helped me think, I wonder if what he's referring to is his life before this change. Oh, that's a great question. You know, all that he, I mean, he, he was a pretty terrible person. He did horrible things. And maybe that is the affliction that he carries that had that changed happened sooner. Lives would have been saved. People wouldn't have been persecuted. I don't know. Just a thought. He participated in the stoning of Stephen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, he threw rocks at a human being and killed them. Yeah. He's not a great guy. Quite an affliction. (laughs) But that's quite an affliction to carry around. Right. What do you do with that kind of guilt? Ooh, that's and another sermon on this. There you go. Now, the next time it comes around, <laughs> Seth, remember this conversation. Well, we're getting close to time here, but there's two other things I really want to lift up. One is thank you again. And you have said this before. I think we can need to continue to hear it. But you acknowledge that change involves loss, even when it is a positive change, necessary change, a change that is life-saving it still involves loss. And again, I've heard you say this in other sermons. Tell me why this piece is so important to you. My sense is that people often avoid change because they don't want to lose. Mm. But there will be loss no matter what. Even not changing, which I didn't get into, contains loss. There's loss as one moves through life no matter what. And so to recognize the fact that loss is inevitable and loss is just part of the thing, it might make us a little less resistant to the loss. Or we, we, we focus so much on it. We focus so much on the loss. Well, this changed and I lost that. Well, what would you have lost had you not changed or made a different decision? Recognizing that loss is endemic to everything feels important to me as humans encountering themselves. And I think this is especially significant when we're talking about collective change, communal change. Yeah. When you widen the question to be about in a community when change is necessary or or talked about or inevitable, that there will be loss, even though even if we're changing to something more productive, more in the realm of God's kingdom. There's, there will be loss. I really hope the congregation hears that because that really applies to a lot in Plymouth's history. It reminds me of a story that when there was a person on our committee for children, youth, and families that was talking about the change of services that we have now, a 9 and 11 and the Sundays at 10 in the middle, and they wisely said, this change will be inconvenient for me and my family, yet it's the best thing for Plymouth 
I want to do it. They were able to recognize their own loss in the change and yet still see the benefit. The loss did not stop them from seeing the benefit. That's a really good illustration. Sometimes we do have to kind of get outside of ourselves and our own agenda and our own perceived need to see what's best for the community. Yeah. I think that's really significant. Well, I just have one final question before we wrap things up and coming back to your sermon title. You say towards the end of your sermon that this is our calling to change. And in fact, I want to read, uh, this is a very compelling few sentences. This is our calling. This is what is asked of us. This is who we get to be. We are supposed to receive the surrounding theophany and change. To change does not mean to forget who we were before, but to root ourselves in that past in order to be changed for the future. What was past is not what will be, but all that will be is rooted in the soil of the past. Those are some powerful words, Seth. Whoa, who wrote that? (laughs) (laughs) I think you did. Just in this last minute, tell tell us, what what are you talking about here? A month ago, I was having lunch with a friend of mine, and and we were talking about how churches are the most risk-averse places, even though they are rooted in a tradition that asks people to change and give up everything and risk everything and be different inside the society that we're in. Even though that is our root, that's who we follow, that's our tradition, we are so afraid to do anything. And that I think was sitting in my mind that if for us to be who we're supposed to be, for us to become who we say we want to be, the root of all that we are, we need to be able to face the changes and the losses and digest them and move through them together and not just say, well, there will be loss, so let's not do anything. Mm. And we often think that change is somehow all new. Like, oh, well, if we do this thing that's different, everything will be new. Well, Paul was still once Saul. He didn't stop being Saul as a younger person. It was still part of who he was. It was still maybe his affliction was that that was still inside of him. We will always be who we once were, but we get to take that and turn it into who we want to be. And often this is framed I very purposely use the word, this is who we get to be, because I want it to be positive. We get to do this. This is not a burden. It might not be easy, but we get to do this. What a gift that we all get. get. We are allowed to do this together. There is nobody stopping us but ourselves. Well, and this calling, this call to change, both an individual call and a communal call is deeply, the way you have framed this is deeply honoring of the past while just completely rooting ourselves also in the possibilities of what is to come. Yeah. And that to me is hope. That is hope. That is hope. (laughs) This calling is hopeful. Mm -hmm. What a gift it is. Well, thank you, Seth, for again preaching a sermon worth talking about. I I just think there's there we could have we could talk for another hour. This is a really compelling subject. What does it take for us to change? I I welcome people to continue the conversation. Let us know what you're thinking. How glad we are that you have listened to this and that you continue to do. Have a wonderful week, friends. Be well. 
Be well. As always, we look forward to hearing from you. Bye.